Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Today's guest is Oren Hoffman, a serial entrepreneur and prolific investor. He's the CEO and chief historian of SafeGraph and is an investor in over 75 tech companies. To be honest, I was pretty nervous to interview with him. Oren's such a clear thinker with some serious intellectual firepower. This conversation is primarily about how to think, and we have a blast. We discuss default options like going to college or buying a house and the need to reaffirm these on a regular basis. We also cover combating status-seeking behavior and the challenging skill of holding two opposing views at once. And finally, we examine the relationship between coolness and entrepreneurship and why when it comes to work-life balance, Oren thinks we should recruit proud members of the anti-balance society. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Kehi, and today's guest is Oren Hoffman. How are you, Oren? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be here. I've really had a lot of fun preparing for this interview, so uh, so it's going to be a good one. I'd love to start with, uh, with just uh, the basics. Where did you grow up? Grew up in New York, went to college at Berkeley in California, and then ended up staying here and started a few companies, and now now run LiveRam. Now run, sorry, SafeGraph. <laughs> Have you, like, like we said, uh, if, if, if anyone takes a look at Oren's LinkedIn page, you'll find so many companies. Then you'll find companies that were acquired by other companies. So there's a lot of parentheticals. And then there's a, a monster list of investments also with parentheticals <laughs> of uh, acquirers. So I, I don't blame you, Oren, because uh, I, I went through that myself. Awesome. <laughs> I'd love to. I mean, clearly... You have an entrepreneurial streak in you, and that's the, probably the understatement of the year. But do you recall your earliest entrepreneurial moment? Yeah, I mean, it's always a question like, are these entrepreneurs made or are they built? And so, you know, personally, I've been doing like entrepreneurial stuff for a long time. Um, I knew I had to pay my way through college and just start a couple of businesses in, in high school to give me the savings so I could pay my way through college. But I don't necessarily think that's necessarily the has to be the path for everybody. I, I know people who became entrepreneurs at age 50 or a, even age 60 and became very successful. So uh, I think everyone can takes a different path. When you some of these kind of jobs to entrepreneurial ventures to to pay for college, can you what what's a memorable one that sticks out? Yeah, I mean, start a couple of like tiny little companies, uh, had like a baseball car dealership in, in, uh, junior high and high school. And then high school started a, a services business. It was like a temp staffing firm for other high school kids. And through that was able to get a pretty sizable savings that, uh, paid for my first three years of college, which was really nice. Wow. And th- this was around what time period? Basically like late eighties, early nineties. So pre-internet. Um, pre-internet, that's right. Got it. And what did you study? Um, you said you went to Berkeley? Yeah, I studied engineering, Berkeley, uh, mostly like math, probability, statistics, and then started first internet company while I was in college and then sold that uh, about a year after graduation. Right. How many companies themselves did you found? have you founded? 
it's always unclear. So I think I probably found about 300 companies, about 200 of which failed like pretty much immediately. And then of the 100 that didn't fail immediately, probably 95 failed eventually and maybe five weren't failures. And of those five, only some were large successes. So when you say you founded 300... At least in my head. In your head, got it. How many of those were funded with some amount of capital? And it could be small. Yeah, probably probably those five. Yeah, Maybe, Maybe now it's more like 10. Yeah. Got it. Have you ever worked? Have you ever applied for a job? No. Uh, sorry, I, in, in college did, yeah. So in college, worked for a few companies in college. And then post-college did kind of like go through the recruiting process a bit, but never actually ended up at a company there. But but definitely did some college internships. Got it. Wow. That is... Um that's really incredible. That that is that is quite a uh, an uh, an awesome uh, statistic that probably very few people can say. And, and when you were when you were founding of these five companies, is there a common arc around types of business or sector? I think generally, com- people should try to start businesses. And certainly, I, I didn't do this when I when I when I was first starting, so I didn't really think about this, but. I think people should generally start businesses where they have some sort of inherent advantage in. And so you should always be looking like, where do you have an unfair advantage in? And that's really important. So I think the the core kind of things you should look for when you're looking to start a business is one, like, do you have unfair advantage? Two, is this business going to be valuable in the future? And three, do most other people uh, think this business will not be valuable in the future? Those are the kind of like the core things that you want to look for. And if there's a good Venn diagram overlap with those three things, then you want to start a business in that category. Interesting. So where do you have an unfair advantage? Do other people not see that unfair advantage? And can you create value in the future? Well, yeah. So where do you have an unfair advantage? The second one would be if for the particular business, do you think this particular business idea will be extremely valuable in the future? And then the third one is, do most other people disagree with you and think this particular business will not be valuable in the future? That's where you want to start business. Now, of course, you want to be right. So if you want to be right that you have an unfair advantage. You want to be right that this business will be valuable in the future. And then you want to be right that most other people don't think this business will be valuable in the future. The one that is a little less intuitive for me is the third leg of that stool where others don't believe it's going to be a good business. Why is that part important? I could see that in investing. Yeah, it's the same reason why it's investing. Yeah, if everyone believes it's, it's a little bit different than investing. So in investing, if everyone believes it'll be big, then then it's already priced in. So you're not going to make a lot of money. And when you're starting a business, it just means you're just going to have a lot of competition from a lot of really smart people. And so you want to start a business where ideally you you can move very, very quickly. And and it's really hard to have an unfair advantage if everyone else is trying to do the same thing. If you look at different kind of in in your portfolio of of angel investments, could you give um, some examples of of what those might consist of? Most companies are really only good at a couple of things, Um, maybe, maybe up to three things any company is really good at. And usually there's it's some usually reflects the founders, uh, what the founders are good at is what the company good at. So if you think of Salesforce.com, which is just an incredibly successful company, uh, the founder uh, and CEO of Salesforce.com, Mark Benioff, is probably the best B2B marketer on the planet. 
He's just incredible. And he was great at B2B marketing even before he was at Salesforce.com. Like he was always, that was his core strength. And Salesforce is by far the best, in my opinion, is the best B2B marketing company out there. Uh, they're just super strong. Now, there's other areas where maybe they're not so strong and like they're not a great UI company. Um, but it doesn't matter. Like it's really important to focus on one's strengths and one's weaknesses are, are often much less important than one's strengths. And those strengths could be, or could they range from being, say, highly technical to for someone who's an AI specialist to something softer, like being a good marketer, being a good recruiter or salesperson? Absolutely. It's what's important is to understand your strengths and um, and to play to your strengths and ideally be in a market where those strengths have value. So if you're going to go start an AI company and you're not great at AI, then you need to have some sort of understanding of that and then some sort of lens of what you are good at. And there's a lot of AI companies that are actually just really good at marketing and that actually can work. So it really depends on what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish. Interesting. You said earlier about the the nurture versus nature question on uh, entrepreneurship. What have you seen, kind of in, in the in the ranges? You, you mentioned that age obviously is not a good predictor of it. Do you see um, entrepreneur entrepreneurial behavior as something that can be taught? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think I think lots of people are entrepreneurial. A lot more people are entrepreneurial than even think they're entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my definition of being an entrepreneur is someone who steals office supplies from home and brings them to work. Uh, so it could be really any any type of person. A teacher can be an entrepreneur. Uh, someone in the military can be an entrepreneur. Now, um, uh, you don't have to start a business to be entrepreneurial, but if you are going to start a business, you better be entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what what do you think gets in the way of people who are entrepreneurial? from actually starting businesses? I don't think you should, everyone should start a business. It's not for everybody. For some people, they have to start a business because they're like social outcasts or something. And you know, I probably fit in that bucket. But I don't think everyone should go start a business. It's actually a lot more interesting sometimes to be a part of something, to be a part of, a, you know, I, um, you know, there's not a lot of people out there starting countries, right? We're, we're mostly part of countries we like and we believe in them. Maybe we try to change the country to be better. So you, you, you shouldn't have to start or, you know, not everyone's starting religions. It's kind of like I'm a Catholic. I like being Catholic. I'm a Jew. I like being whatever it might be. So uh, you don't have to go start everything in the world. There's some things you can just you can like and then you can be entrepreneurial within that framework. That is interesting because this, especially with the narrative I guess it's a media narrative or just a, a cultural narrative around entrepreneurship as as being celebrated or, or maybe over-indexed on. I guess my, my question, do you think that culturally we are oversold the joys or the benefits uh, of being an entrepreneur? Probably. A lot of people become an entrepreneur because it's cool. Uh, and usually that's not a good reason to do it. And so it used to be, let's say in the 1980s, that if you became a tech entrepreneur, it's probably not because you were trying to be cool. And so 
you would at least know that they're all doing it for the right reasons. They might not be good entrepreneurs or they might not have had a good idea, but um, at least you know they're doing it for the right reasons. Today, it's much more difficult. It's actually like the cool thing to be an entrepreneur. It's And it's even cooler to be a social entrepreneur. So there's probably all these people starting nonprofits today. And, um, and you know some people are doing it for the right reason, but some people are doing it really just to be cool. Is that something that you're able to suss out as you're doing diligence as an as an investor? I think it's difficult. I think um, I think it's somewhat easy to suss out people who are cool, and most cool people are not always good entrepreneurs. But there are plenty of really cool people who are entrepreneurs and who are very successful. And so I think it's like somewhat difficult to to know. And there are some people who probably like weren't cool when they, you know, uh, when they're younger, like um, Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. But there's probably other people like Drew Houston, who's the CEO of, of uh, Dropbox, who probably was always cool and was, is, is a very successful entrepreneur. So you probably don't want to not invest in people just because they're cool. But there is probably some you probably do want to do some extra due diligence if you think they're cool. Interesting. One data point is having spoken to, to a lot of entrepreneurs, not not as an investor, but uh, socially or th- or through this podcast, being uh, kind of a big uh, fan of. Um, are you familiar with Jerry Colonna from Reboot and his his work? I don't. No, I'm, I'm not. Jerry is. Um, if you Google him, the first thing that will come up is a Wired article that calls him um, the the man who makes founders cry. And he's uh, he's an executive coach. He's he's kind of he used to be Fred Wilson's partner at Flatiron. He has a podcast. I'll, I'll send it to you after. I'll put it in the show notes. But he he interviews tons of entrepreneurs, and it's a little bit like part therapy, part coaching session. I was a guest on on his podcast, and. Oftentimes, the narrative is a little bit like what you said, where there's there's someone who was, you know, either a social outcast or or you know, um, un, uncomfortable in their own skin, usually in their formative teenage years, and uh, during that period, kind of as a result, develops some kind of superpowers or special special skills, whether it's coding or, or like speculating in comic books and baseball cards, and then kind of continues to parlay that skill into kind of college and adulthood. And like, like you had said, a, a, that forms a strong basis for entrepreneurship. And then kind of they have some amount of success and they're, uh, oftentimes it's, it's kind of accompanied with some questioning, self-questioning, self-inquiry. And on his episode, what what happens often, and maybe it could be just narrative. In my case, it wasn't. It felt very true, is that the the issues that you had as a teenager, a lot of the behaviors that you, you, you came up with are, they didn't make them go away, right? They just kind of papered over them. And then you achieve this amount of success as an entrepreneur, but you still have to kind of face a lot of the things, the insecurities or fears that you felt as a child. And so there, there's often this kind of in the podcast, there's this tipping point where people get like, I, I know I personally was like very kind of taken aback. Like I wasn't crying, but I was definitely like, whoa, he's kind of pierced through my soul slightly in a way that that, that hasn't been done before. So just listening to you. All right, well, we'll know this is successful if I start crying. <laughs> I, am not, I, am not taking, uh, I am not taking the Jerry Colonna uh, playbook. But I think that's um, 
you know, that that's one question that that is always reoccurring, which is, you know, Jer- Jerry, and, and again, not to, not to point on Jerry, but th- that there's a school of thought around entrepreneurship with having some amount of balance in your life. And, um, and this is a debate that kind of like flares up on Twitter every three months or so is like, can you be a successful entrepreneur, but still have a balanced life where you kind of tend to yourself, tend to your, your family and so on. What have you seen in, in your experience on entrepreneurs balance? And when I say balance, I, let's just say work-life balance and then success. Well, e- even if you broaden it out to just not entrepreneurs, but if you broaden it to everybody, I mean, if you're balanced, just by the word, by the definition, that means you're not great at anything, right? The de- that's the definition of being balanced. And uh, I think balance is really bad. Um, we should all be against balance. We should like, we should recruit proud members of the anti-balance society. Like, you, you should not give equal weight to all parts of your life. You should weigh each part of your life differently. You're you know, you should have a very concentrated portfolio at all times so that you can actually concentrate on things. And in general, you should concentrate in favor of your strengths and you should spend less time in areas that you're weak. So I'm, I'm not making a judgment about what you should concentrate on, only that you should concentrate. Uh, you know, this idea of quote unquote balance is, is just a real illusion. I personally never met anyone who is even close to being balanced. <laughs> and Trying to balance yourself is bad for you, and it can be also really bad for the world. Hmm. Interesting. So if you take that kind of concentrated portfolio, like your health is not a strength or a weakness, right? It's a, a state, right? Isn't it a little more neutral, or am I thinking about it the wrong way? Yeah, I mean, c- certainly, but if you're going to, is, is, your, is your goal to be all in on your health? Like you could spend all of your time on your health, right? Um, you could spend no time on your health. You could spend, you're right, you could spend some time. These things are somewhat continuum, but you're going to be out of balance. Like you're going to be, if you're, the more time you spend on your health means probably time you're not spending on your family. The more time you spend on your family means time you're not spending at work. More time you're at work means time you're not spending with your friends. The more time you're with friends means time you're not spending um, pursuing some sort of interesting hobby or not giving back to society. Or You, know, you go through all the different lists of things that you want to do. Like you, you cannot balance them. Yeah. You have to pick priorities and focus on those priorities. If your priority is your family, fine. If your priority is doing this, you know, whatever it might be, if you try to do everything, you really don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And, and so should family, let's take family and health, because um, I guess it would be hard to debate that you want to completely avoid those. Um, or have you as an entrepreneur, how have you managed to find that balance between to, to kind of bring them in to, or do you bring them into the core pool of uh, concentrated strengths as, uh, as an entrepreneur? Yeah, you have to figure out what you're going to spend time on, how you allocate it, and then what you're not going to do. It's really about also figuring out what you're not going to do that's important. And so you might say, like, I'm not going to spend time with my friends in the next two years. I'm not going to spend time or, or I'm going to spend limited time or, or whatever it might be. You know, if there's a point where, you know, uh, I've got a big meeting or a point when I'm going to go work out in the gym, I'm going to pick the big meeting over working out in the gym or, or vice versa. Uh, but you have to make hard choices. These are not easy choices to make. 
and um, and you're always going to be upset at your choice. There's something you're that you really love that you're not going to be able to do. Is that always the case? That is always the case. There's never going to be a point in your life where you're not making these hard choices. If there is, you lead a very uninteresting life. Yeah. Huh. If you think, without getting into what the choices you made were, but have they? Are they? How dynamic or static are they over? You know, uh, I don't know, twenty-year period. Oh, they can certainly change. You can you can say I'm going to focus on let's say work, and then. At some point in your life, you're going to say, I'm going to focus on my family or I'm going to focus on health. They can, they can be done in series. It's just very hard to be done in parallel. You're, you're an analytical mind. Do you look back? Do you kind of do uh, an ex post analysis on where you decided to expend those resources to assess if you kind of did it the right way? Kind of like using hindsight bias? You're like using... It's not a bad idea to if you're if you're going to plan for the future, you should look at what you did in the past to have some sort of understanding of that. So if you're going to try to like, no one maybe makes like an exact allocation of time or something, but time is is really what you're doing is you're you're really allocating your time in some sort of way. How you spend your time is your priority. Um, so if someone says, "I don't have time to read a book," it just means they're not prioritizing reading the book over everything else that they do. And so, uh, at least for most of us, probably for most people listening to your podcast, they have somewhat charmed lives. They have the ability to, to. It's not like their their time is completely dependent on someone else who's who's overseeing them. I'd love to switch to another topic that um, you, you've spoken about and, and we spoke about briefly, which is the one of default options. Do you want to, to first kind of share share what they are, and then we can have a conversation about I mean, that? I, I, I think a lot about default options. It, it, those are basically like the things you do, either because everyone around you in society is doing, or because you've always been doing those things in the past. And they're generally the right thing to do, but one should occasionally question them. You know, I'll give you an example. So, for instance, I've lived in San Francisco for the last twenty years. That means there's a high likelihood I'll be living there next year, but it should be something I affirmatively decide to do rather than default decide to do. And other default options include things like going to college, staying in your job, getting married, having kids, your religion, sending your kids to the most competitive school. You know, they can also be your core philosophies, your political beliefs, any, anything around that. Have you found that people don't question the default option enough? I, I know that just by you, you know, there's power in naming things. And ever since I heard you use that phrase, I, I mean, obviously the concept is familiar to me, but I never thought about specific situations through that lens. I was actually writing some down. You listed all of them that I had written down with the exception of uh, one which like, uh, I should buy a house. And um, do you find that people don't question the default option enough? Yeah, doing the default just because it's the default can lead to a life not lived to the fullest. And now, now it doesn't mean you should question these default options every day. That that would lead to a life of insanity. Um, but never questioning them is is long term problematic. A, a good idea might be to set some sort of time aside once a year or maybe twice a year and kind of go through maybe your top twenty defaults and. Ideally, you should be changing your mind about maybe one of those 20 once per year or something. That would probably be a good rate of, of thing. If you're changing like 19 out of the 20, there's something something really problematic going on. 
that makes total sense to me. And I might start to do that. I don't know if I could list my 20 default options um, because just identifying them is, is not, I mean, once you get out of the obvious ones, you know, as you started the, the sixth and seventh one that you started to list, I was like, oh, that's one too. I hadn't thought about that one. <laughs> but then honestly challenging, that requires a tremendous amount of self-awareness to the point that I would argue that you probably need someone else to help you with that. Do you, do you agree? Yeah. Having some sort of board meeting with somebody else is probably not a bad idea where you can work with them or they can work with you. That could be a spouse or it could be a close friend or it could just be a coach. So, you know, working through some of those things could be helpful or you can be someone who can do it by yourself. So it really depends on your personality. The, the, the great thing though, is if you affirmatively commit to do something rather than just the default, then you're going to be much more excited and you're going to be really much more committed to it. Uh, so there, there, there's a plus side of actually thinking through your default. Then you'll be like, if, you know, if I affirmatively commit to staying in San Francisco, I'm going to be really even more excited about being in San Francisco. Now, there are certain defaults that are much more difficult to walk away from. And those defaults require a lot more thinking up front, probably before you even do them. So for instance, ending a marriage is extremely difficult for a family. So you should really think about it before you do it. Um, and of course, the extreme is like having kids. Once you have them, you have a real obligation to them and they'll, they'll probably suffer quite a bit if you just walk away. Now, by contrast, if I left San Francisco tomorrow, the city of San Francisco is probably is just fine. It, it may even improve on average. Yeah, so, yeah tax yeah. dollars. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I, I guess, I know you have a kid. Do you have, how many kids do you have? Two kids. Two kids. Did you actively have the default option conversation with your spouse in, yeah. in that lens? Like, yeah, Well, first of all, you should have it with yourself. And you may have it with yourself over time because that, that may define what type of spouse you end up with. You know, if you if you choose to have kids or choose to not have kids, you probably want to end up with a spouse that has a similar choice that you've made. Otherwise, that could lead to to difficulties in the relationship. So have that with yourself first, and then and then go out and find a spouse that has that, and then you should affirmatively have those discussions. I'm not a marriage coach, but this is what my my main advice would be. Yeah, interesting. And why do you think people don't don't question these options? I think. Oh, yeah. Why, why do you think that, that they kind of go unchecked for so many people? Well, I think it's a, just a hu- core human behavior. It's, it, they're usually, the default options are usually the right option. For, for you know, a super smart kid who, who's, you know, a junior in high school, the, the default option is to go to college. And that probably is the right option for most people. It, it just is something that one should affirmatively decide rather than doing it because it's the default. Um, and for some people, it's probably not the right option. And for a small percentage of people, it may not be the right option. They maybe shouldn't go to college and they should have thought about it ahead of time before they did. Or maybe they should take some years off before they went. Or, you know, there's all these different gradations and these decisions. And implicit in the default option is a strong kind of societal pressure to conform. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's just it's also human behavior. Humans are mimetic beings. We we tend to copy each other. We tend to conform to some sort of hierarchical structure. We conform to our own micro society. So, you know, if you lived in the East Village in New York City versus living in Alabama, you know, you'll have different things that different kind of norms that you conform to, et cetera. 
And how should one, and, and just in the time I've gotten to know you and, and, and reading what, what, you've, what you've written, you strike me as someone who is very, a very strong independent thinker. And, and I think if I look at myself, I was probably, especially as I was younger, I was much more about um, default options. Actually, I'll, I'll even share a story was when I wanted to get married to my wife, she would she would actually question me on the default option. Like, why, why, why do you want to be married to me? Why do you want to be married, period? <laughs> Which is kind of, a, it just, it's kind of funny from a gender kind of role reversal um, perspective, but it really made me think like, wow. She's right. You should, you should, these are actually, these are core things you should think about. I mean, being married is such an important decision. It, for most people, it's, it could be the most important decision that they make in their entire life. So you should, Obviously, think about whether you should be married, and then you should also think about if this is the right person for you to be married to. Absolutely, and, and I take it even a step further. She would, um, even now, it's like I, I passed that test somehow, and uh, <laughs> and, I, and and I know my wife listens, and and, and I know that that I passed, and I punched up above my weight, and so I just kind of held on for dear life. Um, so maybe the default option conversation is not even relevant in my case. But uh, even now, she she will she'll still ask me. She. she She'll say, she's like, what is it that you love about me? And I, and it usually leads to some kind of argument because (laughs) I, I do love her. Um, I, it's, but it's sometimes I see, you know what it is, Orin? It's that there's this, there's this complacency and passiveness. And, and I would even go, go so far as call it intellectual laziness when it comes to a lot of these topics, because it's just easier to just, you know, it's like, uh, it's easier to just hit auto renew and just not think about it. I think being an independent thinker is really hard. And one of the things I hate most about myself, and probably many people out there hate about themselves is that how much I care about what other people think. Um, and, and that's just basically a sign that you're human. But it's also a, a massive weakness. A, a much more evolved species would, would species would, would care a lot less about others, uh, what they think at least. And you know, we're everything. We do so many things for status rather because they're intrinsically good things to do. And we, you know, we also spend so much time competing with others. Peter Thiel has this great quote: "Competition is for losers." And uh, you know, one of the reasons that. Um, you know, there, there are certain people I think can be very successful. Like there's people with Asperger's can be really successful because they're not wired to think, to really care so much what other people think. As someone who is very self-analytical and self-aware, when you say that your desire to to compete with others or to, to pursue things that have status in them is, as, is a weakness, do you attempt to chip away at it to make it less of a weakness or God forbid a strength? Sure, but it's it's hard. I don't know if everyone struggles with it, but a lot of people struggle with that. It's a very difficult thing to struggle with, and you, you're there, it's a continuum. You're probably not one and zero. Very few people are one and zero. You know, you but there are some sort of continuum on there, and and you might be at point six, and you probably wish you were point four, or you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for people that are at at one and how like? things that you've seen that can help you shake that a bit? Well, one, you know, the, the Charlie Munger has this saying that the best thinkers can hold two opposing views at once. And I, 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 you know, I personally try to do that, but, and I often fail at that. Uh, most times people end up falling in love with an idea and they kind of get married to that idea. 
And then, you know, maybe later they divorce that idea to, to go change their mind. Um, but it's really hard to like hold two opposing views at once and kind of really look at them from all these different sides. But that's, that's what you, that's what a really evolved thinker should be doing. Yeah. Maybe one other way that I've just been, um, because he's on his book tour right now and he's, he's kind of everywhere, uh, Ray Dalio, one way might be, and I don't do this, uh, might be being clear and, and again, intentional on your own values or principles that you live by so that if you get pulled towards status seeking behavior, at least there's a sanity check that says, look, these are the 12 things that I care about, or these are the 15 ways I act in these types of situation, then you could probably pull yourself away from the more natural status-seeking behavior. Yeah, it's hard to do. So that that's not a bad, it's not a bad idea. You can also retrospectively look at your time and you can say, okay, why? And then be honest with yourself. Why were you spending your time doing that? Often, like you can make anything that's status-seeking you can make some sort of other reason of why your justification of why you were doing something. So, you know, I uh, was, you know, whatever you're trying to get your kids into the best school. Is it you you could say it's you're doing it for your kids. You could also say you're doing it for status. So a lot of things you're doing for status, you, you, there may also have these alternative reasons that, that you could justify um, you spending your time doing that, but you have to be honest with yourself when you when you do these things. And being honest with yourself is really really hard to do. And most of us can't do it that often. Do you meditate? I don't. I ask because I, and in in everything that you're you're describing, and I I try to do it. My hunch is I do it. You know, twenty percent of how much you do, but you know, like like holding opposing views and kind of reevaluating that. And uh, and the reason why I ask is because when I try to do these things, uh, I get so mentally exhausted. <laughs> and, and I think like, and sleeping doesn't really make that go, that mental exhaustion go away. It helps. And so the, the, I, I can genuinely say that, that meditation, eh, you know, I'm, I like meditation. I'm not one of those, like, it's the silver bullet to all of the humanity's problems person. But I can, I, I could say in my own experience, when I do feel that like drainage from Pro, like overanalyzing so many things, I have found that like meditation does work as a kind of like a breath mint for you. Uh, well, one of the things that's difficult is everyone is so different, and so what works for you it may not end up working for your best friend. And it's I think it's really hard for people to realize that because if something works for you, let's say meditation ends up working really great for you, or um, some sort of like spiritual or religious experience works really great for you. If it works great for you and you're a giving person, you you want to let everyone know about it. You want to tell people about it. You want to evangelize it to others because it works so well for you and it was such so transformative to you. And it doesn't that that may not translate to other people. Because people are so different, and um, and so uh, so it's always hard to know what to do. Because just because it worked for somebody else doesn't mean it's going to work for you. Oh man, you just hit to like the crux, uh, a, a topic that I wanted to, to to bring up later, but but I'll bring it up now. Which is yeah, let's. I, I guess it is a it's a bit of an insecurity of about the work that that I do now. So, you know, for 14 years, I was on Wall Street and, you know, did, uh, you know, investing and all that 
boring stuff we talked about, <laughs> and then took a break, and then started writing and and doing podcasts and things like that. And a lot of it was around discoveries about myself that I had made through learning new things, through trying new things, uh, et cetera. And in a way, it's turned into, you know, I, I sometimes hedge, or it could be just my imposter syndrome, but I don't like to call it a business. Um, but it's kind of turned into my primary activity from which I do generate some income. <laughs> so I guess I guess it is a business. And I'm torn. You know why? Uh, because I'm torn because... On one end of the spectrum, I'm trying to be as self-aware and share as truthfully as I can, like the good and the bad. And there's a group of people that are really that learn from it, that that try things out, that 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 make changes in their life, etc. The same way that you know, I've I'm not a huge Tim Ferriss fan, but I think he has a really good podcast. And and every five episodes, I'll hear some guests and I'm like that's an amazing kernel of insight, and I want to go try that. But then on the other end, there's the point that you just made, which is like, just because something works for you, A, there's a tendency to evangelize it. Um, There's probably some behavioral bias in there, like (laughs) confirmation bias or something, something of that sort. And then B, you you introduce a potential like layer of a business opportunity in it. And then it becomes particularly like double tainted to some extent. And so here I am stuck in this kind of continuum that that makes me like if i'm very honest it just makes me really uncomfortable it's, it's really interesting it's a um the other thing is you you should change your mind about these things um and so and also just because something was good for you in the past doesn't mean it's good for you in the future so something you did you know uh, five years ago may or may not be great for you anymore or may have helped you overcome something and then it's not needed um, and so, uh, so like, for instance, there may be, you may have gone to therapy in the past, but maybe it's not good to go to therapy now. And so, so there could be a lot of different things that, you know, which, which could be mental therapy or it could be physical therapy or it could be, you know, wh- whatever it might be. And, uh, you could have had a business coach in the past. Maybe it's not good now. There, a business strategy you did in the past may have worked, you know, like you may have hired you, your past strategy was to hire people who were this from this major at Harvard. Maybe it's not a good strategy anymore because maybe everyone else figured that out. So there's, there's lots of different things that like should change over time. And your strategy about yourself, your strategy about how you relate to others, your strategy about all these different things, Um, there may be some core values that don't change, but your strategy of how you achieve those values should change over time. How do you think about advice? Forget like paid advice, but just advice in general, receiving on the being on the receiving end of it. I mean, I think it's really hard to grow without getting advice. And so there's kind of like different types of feedback that you'll want. Um, so you, you, you mentioned Ray Dalio and, and I think in their case, they're really about this kind of like constructive critical feedback, how to make some sort of change in what you're doing so that you can improve. And I think that's really important feedback, but the even more important feedback to get, and I think to give to others is this specific positive feedback, which is, Hey, here's this thing you're doing really well. Maybe you don't understand that you're doing it well. So I'm going to break it down for you and tell you why you're doing something so well and give you and, and, and so that you can understand it better. So hopefully you can do it even better in the future. And this is so hard to give. 
it's, 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 people think positive feedback is great job, you know, um, and that's really nice or, you know, or I love you or, you know, or, you know, all those things are great to hear and, and one should give those things. So I, I think those are good feedback to give people, but the specific positive f- feedback, as you mentioned, your wife wants to know why you love her and, um, and maybe she's at, you know, point eight in that thing of why she love her. She can get from point eight to point nine. And, uh, and she, and, and, and so, so understanding those things are really important. Now, if you think about a, if you think about a marriage, right, you, you probably fell in love with your wife for for some core reasons. Um, now, I, I haven't met your wife, but I'm sure she's not perfect. Nobody is. Um, and so, I think a much better strategy in working with others, whether it's your spouse, whether it's someone in your family, whether it's your coworker, et cetera, is to really keep focusing on the things you really like about them. And get them even better at those things, rather than the things you know, like you know, you 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 left your socks on the ground or something like that. Like the things you dislike about them, and you're trying to get them from bad to mediocre and those things. Oh wow, there's so much in in what you just said. The first thing that jumped to my mind was positive feedback is why it's pretty hard to manage high performers. They're fine, they perform well, but to really kind of keep them performing is actually very difficult. I've found in, in my own experience. That's right. And, and you, you notice every single tennis player has a coach. Every golf player has a coach. Every professional quarterback has a coach, right? They have their own personal team around them that helps them do better. Now, n- probably nobody on that team could beat them at tennis or no one on that team is a better quarterback than them um, or no one in their team is a better golfer than them. But those people still can help them get better. And having that team around you is really, really important for you to grow. You're indirectly reiterating a point you made earlier about um, kind of playing to your strengths. Is that a philosophy, playing to your strengths, like doubling down on your strengths as opposed to bolstering your weaknesses? Is that, well, I guess first question is, did I kind of paraphrase that accurately? Yeah, absolutely. And have you always thought that way? No, I, um, I think most smart people don't think that way. And I think it's one of the biggest mistakes smart people make is that they focus so much on their weaknesses rather than focusing. And then, then they never end up being great at anything. Because, again, it's that, that time allocation is really important. So focusing on your weaknesses is good. If you go from bad to mediocre in something, you certainly are improving. But if you go to good to great, um, and especially in this world that we live in where so much of the rents end up going to the to those who are great it's probably a much better improvement point to go from good to great than to go from bad to mediocre how did you come to that conclusion or to that how did to that belief well i I think i mean um managing people can be humbling so um i think if you're mean so there was this one person i was managing who uh is this, this terrific person person i worked with for a really really long time and i love working with him and um and every every six months to 12 months i'd write his reviews and 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 then one time i actually went back and like looked at all the reviews that i wrote about this guy and they were pretty similar in terms of feedback and to, uh, and, and and i realized like He's never going to do any of these things. It's kind of like not even in his personality, these things that I'm asking him to improve on. Um, he's never going to get great at any of these things. But I love working with him. He's one of the most best people I've ever worked with in my life. So why am I harking on nitpicking on these stupid little things about, uh, about things he can improve upon um, where he's not that great? 
Instead, why can't I help him get even better at the things that I think he's really good at already? Interesting. Do you think that scales to gigantic companies? Because the intuitive response I have to that is that those things that those secondary things, there's some value in kind of making the whole machine work together. I think in companies, you want to have some sort of core culture where people are aligned on that culture and have um, these and believe in the same core cultural values. Otherwise, the machine can't work. But within that, I think people have varying skills that they're good at. And they should be, um, if you're not great at public speaking, you don't have to be great at public speaking to do your job. You can be a great CEO who's not good at public speaking. You probably have to be good at communicating to be a great CEO. Um, That's probably a core thing you need to do, but that doesn't mean you have to do it through public speaking. You can do it through one-on-ones. You could do it through writing. You could do it through uh, helping create a video. There could be a lot of different ways where you can communicate a core message and core values of the company, core strategy of the company without having to be this immediate. You don't have to be a Steve Jobs-like speaker. Everyone thinks today they need to be Steve Jobs. (laughs) And um, and you know he was blessed with certain skills that he was just incredible at. But by the way, he had incredible flaws. His flaws are so obvious, and and I think that is what it is for most people. People who are great at things also have really well known flaws. Yeah, interesting. And that's and it's because they didn't work on those flaws. That's how they became great. Yeah. Wow. That is definitely a new a way of thinking that I had not really explicitly thought about before. So. So thank you for thank you for uh, allowing me to hold dual challenging opinions, dual <laughs> opinions uh, in my head. I wanted to ask you about the pursuit of happiness. How how important is pursuing happiness in as it relates to ambition, spending spending one's time, etc.? I think of it a little bit differently. I think what what should your number one goal in life be? And I think it's a helpful thing to talk to talk through and. I think your number one goal in life should not be to aspire to something that a person could be born with. So people can be born rich, they can be born healthy, they can be born good looking, they can be born happy. And I think it's fine to pursue any of those four outcomes. I'm currently pursuing three of the four. You know, I, I, the, the good looking one is hopeless for me. <laughs> We're on audio, man. <laughs> yeah. The, I, and as my mother has told me many times, I have a face for radio. But it, it shouldn't be the number one thing that you're optimizing for. If you're going to optimize for something, it should be something that should be really difficult to achieve. That's why that's what really makes life really exciting. And something very ambitious is good. You know, could be something where you're doing something to help others, but that's what you should be optimizing for in life. You said you shouldn't try to optimize for things that you could be born with. Is that yeah, I, there's nothing wrong with trying to be happy, trying to be healthy, trying to be rich, whatever, trying to be better looking, whatever it might be. All those things I think are fine to to try to try to pursue, but it shouldn't be the number one thing. When people tell me their number one thing they're doing is like optimizing happiness, it seems somewhat odd. I guess that is that that kind of assumes that there is zero that there is zero sum game, right? You could be extremely happy and extremely ambitious, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And to you personally, what does success mean? I mean, I think people have different goals that they're trying to achieve, and if you have certain gifts, you should be trying to pick really big goals. 
Um, and you should try to pick goals that are really hard to do and where you have a high likelihood of failure. So in that, there you should you should always be trying to do something extremely difficult. Is that? Yeah. You should be doing things that are really hard to do for you. And you should be trying to do things for as long as you can for the rest of your life. I think I agree. Um, I think the thing with ambition is that it goes back to kind of the default option conversation where sometimes people have not even thought about the motivation for their ambition. And so then um, you're pursuing this ambition, like, let's just say, you know, we're talking about the startup narrative, you know, people want to like create unicorns, but they never actually thought about why they wanted to create a unicorn. And so in just in that framework, there is something that's difficult creating a unicorn. But is that the right thing for that individual to be doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, we haven't cried yet in this podcast. <laughs> that, that's the, that's that's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, these are really hard questions that everything everyone has to individually make some sort of decision point for themselves on. But doing things that are there, there's plenty of things you can do that are hard, and there's plenty of things you can do that are ambitious. Now, those those two don't always overlap. Sometimes they overlap. But you should be doing things that where where failure is 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 a high likelihood. Um, you just life is much more interesting when um, when you have a light, high likelihood of failing. I can resonate with that, but do you think? Don't you think that there are, that there's entire groups of people that derive tremendous satisfaction from? Like uh, my wife's an artist, and she she paints. She doesn't really sell her her paintings. She enjoys painting. She likes to paint, uh, but th- there isn't that like extreme goal setting nature in painting or, or, or maybe in like many of the arts, aren't there lots of things that, that lots of behaviors that humans can do that do not necessarily have struggle embedded into them? Failure and struggle is somewhat, they're, they're somewhat related, but I don't think they're necessarily okay. the overlap. Fair. But yeah. I mean, it depends what your, your goal in life is to, to, to be, but, but I think uh, uh, having ambitious goals makes life just much, much more fun. And there's an extra added benefit, which if you have these good ambitious goals, you can help others and you can really make society better. So it, it's not a life that's maybe not, I'm, I'm not giving advice for everybody. And so, but, but certainly that's something I try to follow myself. Yeah. I, one, one question, I don't think I fully hear this in, in what you just said, but it's a question that I debate with, with friends sometimes is kind of around this, it's, I'm going to probably not label it well, but it's a utilitarian view of how one should be spending their time. And, and so, for example, the, the, the example that I use is what if going to teach in a you know, very poor country could have the greatest it could be the most impactful thing that I could do where I could impact, you know, 500 lives. And for some reason, I, I can't do that in the United States. Is that the thing that I should do with my life? You, you can't, you can go down that rabbit hole and, and then, then you'll never, you'll never enjoy anything. Every time you spend a, a few dollars buying yourself that, that uh, $5 coconut water, be like, I can't believe I just spent five dollars on this coconut water. I could have sent it to someone in a poor country and helped them. So, you, you, if you go down that rabbit hole, now now it really becomes hard to even live at all. And I I don't think there's anything wrong with me thinking about that and questioning that 
and why am I doing some of these things? I could be helping people more, et cetera. But, uh, but you can't question everything. Got it. Yeah. No. And, and, and there is kind of a, I, I don't know a lot of these branches of like they're the Peter Singer branch of, of, of philosophy that, that makes the case that, uh, that you should be doing, like, if you're not doing that, it's, it's wrong. But I, I guess I brought yeah, that I mean, up. Look, all, that, all of us for sure have to go donate a kidney tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, double the world's kidney supply. Um, yeah, but, I mean, we, if you believe in that, you have to go donate your kidney tomorrow. Yeah. I, I wonder about that though, because there is in that there is kind of happiness coming into play in, in, in the decision, which I don't think you're, you're saying it shouldn't come into play. It's just the, the, the kind of over indexing on it. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think you should. I also don't think you should try to optimize to try to not be happy in the short term. I think a lot of people sacrifice these kind of like huge short term happiness for what they expect is some sort of midterm gain. And this is also very, very risky. And so uh, I think people should be trying to optimize for the long term. And by doing that, often the best strategy is to optimize to do to do more shorter term optimizations and not do a midterm optimization. So a midterm optimization would be um, your political science major in college, and you decide to go to law school not because you love the law, but because you don't really know what else you should be doing, and you know law is a stable job. That would be like a midterm optimization that is usually a bad idea. If you're going to go to law school, you should go because you love the law and you find it appealing and you find it exciting and you want to go do something to help people or whatever it might be. And that gives you this great toolbox to go do it, um, not because of, of, of some other type of reason. Um, and in the short term, great things to optimize for are things like working with really interesting people, working with people you like. So many people are working in jobs where they, they hate their colleagues and it's crazy. Uh, working on really hard problems that stress you and that you find new, like, all those types of things are really great things to optimize for in the short term. Yeah. Interesting. No, it, it's so simple, but the, the number I've actually, you know, we talked a little bit about writing down values and I have written, I've written down things that what a successful life means to me. And one of them, or one of the items is working with people who are good and who inspire me. Yeah, I mean, that's such an obvious one in some ways, but it could take somebody 40 years before they can come up with that. And it goes back to the default options. Well, one question I always ask our guests is, um, what's what's something that they're struggling through right now? In some ways, there are people all over the world who are struggling with real struggles. And what I try to do is, is just remind myself that I'm incredibly lucky to not currently be one of those people. And you know, at some point in the future, I might be one, um, but right now, I'm, you know, I'm, maybe I'm the top 1% lucky people in the world. And, and for those of us who are lucky, we should spend our time being thankful. Too many people I know spend their time on what's wrong with their life rather than what's going well. Um, you know, there are people who were like 99% of their life is amazing and maybe 1% is subpar. And then they spend like 80% of their time thinking about that 1% that's not going well. And, and that, that seems crazy. I, I think it's really, really important to love yourself. It's really hard to love others or, or love humanity unless you do love yourself. Now, of course, it's much easier to love yourself if you are lovely and you act lovely, but that 
that doesn't mean you need to be perfect. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I, I, there's this, this uh, commencement speech, uh, one of the Harvard schools, and, and it asks, it's, there's a poem, but it's, and, and, and what did you seek from this life? And it's the ability to be loved and to love. And it's, it's really, it's really, again, it's one of those things that's like, duh, of course. <laughs> uh, but, but we don't, we don't really talk about, it. you know, we just kind of assume that it just is happening where there, there is some intentionality behind it that is required. So thank you for sharing that, Arn. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I'm, I'm only uh, too sad that neither of us got any crying in on the podcast. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save that for, for round two. Um, where can, go, can people go find out about you, follow your, your activities? Um, we'll put all this in the notes. Oh, great. Yeah. So uh, I, I love Twitter. So people can follow me at, at Oren, A-U-R-E-N. And then my favorite place to uh, learn about ideas and share ideas is Quora. So for those of you uh, people in the audience that haven't checked it out, I, I love Quora. I find it really interesting and inspiring. I spend a lot of time writing there and reading on Quora as well. And and I would add that Oren's Quora is one of the most, uh, and, and I don't often go to it. I will now. I, I spent a lot of time uh, as I was thinking about this interview, but it, it really it really is awesome, and it's on such a wide variety of topics uh, that that I that I highly recommend it. And I would add one more: you have a monthly newsletter, which I think is one of the best. It's very kind of under the radar. <laughs> oh, cool. Thank you. Um, so I will, I will definitely add that. And for a while uh, too, now, now I'm just shamelessly plugging you, but actually a little secret. When, when I don't have an, a good mix of articles for Rad Reads, uh, your pocket feed is public and I'll just go like take a swim in your pocket feed and I will always come out with like two weeks worth of of articles. So pocket, yeah, pocket's a great service. So I, I find it just a really, really helpful service and um, I, I really like it. Awesome. Well, Oren, this has been amazing. We will shed some tears together um, <laughs> on round two. Um, and, and really, thank you for your time and, and for, for being so uh, so candid with us. Uh, thank you. It's been a great interview. Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again. And until next time.